Hello and welcome to the world-famous Driving You Crazy podcast. This is the show where we talk all things transportation. I am the traffic anchor for Denver 7 News. My name is Jason Luber. I am Denver 7's own pedestrian advocate, Joseph Peters. Jason, I hate traffic. Get rid of cars. <laughs> yeah, as a new uh, driver, um, and, I, and I hear your Rain Man style kind of driver, an excellent one, um, that, you, um, that you are now just getting a taste of what everybody else has been dealing with over the past many years. Well, first of all, thank you for referring to me as a Rain Man style of driver. <laughs> I, I can't even begin to tell you how much I appreciate that. Uh, no, nah, man, it's terrible. And, and like, I, you know, I'm, I'm obviously following a lot of the other similar pedestrian cycling advocates, things like that. And everything that they push for is like, let's make driving more uncomfortable so people have to go slower. And so that it's more comfortable for people who are biking and walking. And I get it now. I, I went out of my way to avoid the highway this morning because, like, I would rather just chill, put the windows down, let my dog stick his head out the window, and enjoy my 45-mile-an-hour cruise instead of getting stressed out at 65 and stopping all the time. Well, and you're, you're also referring to some people and advocates who, who want to not just get us to slow down, but they also want to eliminate drivers altogether. Yeah. They believe that the roads belong to walkers and scooters and bikers, period. And that's it. That the way the infrastructure has been developed, because we've been building roads for the last couple of hundred years, is all based around the car. And actually, the roads, when we started them, were, were based on so you could get from place to place on foot, on horseback, and then from there you have the wagons. So really, that's where it started. And then you, so we're not designing roads when we were the old West Denver for the automobile. It was for the horse-drawn buggies. I mean, that's what the roads were really, and the trails were designed for. As they were originally, well, and that's, obviously we're probably going to talk later about the debate that happened locally about e-scooters. But my biggest problem with that is that all the solutions that we're talking about are unrealistic, are 10, 20, 30 years down the line, are really massive infrastructure changes that require you to really win in the court of public opinion, which is something that we're not currently doing. And, you know, at a certain point, it's like, yes, our infrastructure system in Colorado and in Denver specifically could use a complete overhaul. It would be nice to get a facelift, but it would also be nice, you know, to get a couple band-aids, to put a cast on something. You know what I mean? Like little short-term fixes. And that's the one conversation that is just not happening here is how do we make some short-term changes? What's a short-term change? Get the scooters off the sidewalk, right? So that's one short-term change that we could do immediately. And which they're doing. And then in terms of, you know, other short term fixes, start talking about eliminating lanes of traffic, right? Start talking about taking away lanes of traffic in some of these areas. We have two and three lanes and making those entirely bike lanes, because that's something that we could actually do in the next two to three years on some of these surface streets and make them dedicated half car, half bike streets. And that's something where you can build up enough support in the court of a public opinion to actually make it happen. Maybe. Maybe. Right? Maybe, but you have an actual chance there, as opposed to going to the legislature and saying, "I need 150 million dollars if I can put 150 miles worth of scooter track in the city." Well, and what? Let's go, and I'll get back to the rest of the show here in just a bit. But this is good because uh, we had a scooter death, our first scooter death, we believe, in Denver in the last week or so, yep. where there was a guy who was riding a scooter, and as I understand it, he was riding recklessly. And he wasn't riding in a bike lane, wasn't riding on the side, was just riding in the road and hit somebody that was driving legally, speed limit, the whole thing, not even going fast. And it was really more the scooter fault than it was the driver. Well, Am I correct? And the other thing that we need to point out with that is that it doesn't appear he was wearing a helmet. Right. And when the companies say, oh, yes, people wear a helmet, how many people carry around a damn scooter helmet? Nobody. And they're not available on the scooter. And so there are advocates still that, and, and I heard from them because we aired a soundbite from one of them who was talking about the infrastructure and talking about how it doesn't matter that the scooter rider died and the scooter rider was at fault and the scooter rider was driving recklessly and the car driver was doing everything legally and doing just fine, but it's still the car driver's fault because the scooter rider crashed into that car and died. That is where I say that is too much. We can all get along, can't we, Rodney King? Or can we not? That's where the debate is a problem for me. Because when they say uh, that, that we had, I had this debate with uh, not only David Sachs, but also Andy Bosselman from Streets Blog. And, and I, I asked them point blank, both of them, 
where is it is, is there any situation where a pedestrian could be in the wrong? No. None. No situation. Pedestrians are always in the right because the infrastructure, the road network is designed to kill people. That is their position. And that's fine if that's their position, but there is going to be a a wall here that we cannot get across and find common ground, unfortunately, because I, I believe that we should share the roads with everybody, and they believe that you shouldn't have any cars on it, period. Well, and so here's the halfway position, right, is that as, as somebody who's a legitimate pedestrian and cycling advocate now, we do need to take back some of these roads for bikes and, and people who are walking. Like, it, we're just at that point as, as a city, especially within the city core, not so much in the suburbs where everybody is a driver, but here downtown where you're talking about more of a 25, 35, 45% mix, this is an area where we need to start thinking about how are we going to get cars off the streets. Because well, maybe do... not cars off the streets, but at least share the roads, and but only in these downtown congested areas. I don't think we really do. We need to do that out in the hinterlands. No, we sure we sure don't. But I'll tell you what, it, it's ridiculous that you have three lanes of car traffic at Larimer Square, right, where everybody who's on that street is either walking or on a scooter or on a bicycle. Cut that down to one lane of car traffic. And there's other obvious spots where I would say it's time to get rid of one or more lanes of car traffic and let the bicycles have it. Because it does make sense for this city to start talking about how are bikes going to really have their own infrastructure network outside of the trail system. Because the trail system is great, but it's great for recreation. It's not great for actually getting from point A to point B. I agree with you to a point. And we do have to take back maybe some of the lanes in those areas, like you said. Um, we're going to have to adjust and get used to that sort of change for the driver uh, who is used to just driving on three lanes across some of those roads, not only here, but in Boston and in Chicago and in Los Angeles and in these really congested areas where there's a lot of people who work and live. But I don't think even going out of the city core, you could change uh, Colfax and make it down to one lane, or you're going to change uh, MLK Boulevard in downtown Savannah to now just two lanes. I mean, you get you have to look at what the city demands, what, uh, what the city population is, how they are getting around. We have had a huge boom in growth here, not only in downtown Denver, but in, in Nashville and in many other big cities around the country who are facing these exact same issues. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't say I'm a, I'm a car advocate or zealot. I, I do like cars over buses and trains and the bikes and all that stuff. I would prefer to be in my car, but I would also prefer not to be delayed by much more than I am delayed right now because we're taking away two lanes instead of one when one would suffice for the bikes and the, and the pedestrians that we have. Give them the, the room to, to ride. I think sidewalks should be wider. Mm-hmm. Because we have, at least right now, in these big cities, we have now a need to move more pedestrians and bicyclists and scooter riders than we do car drivers. We're just at that point. Well, in in Denver specifically, if you want to talk about the problem here, it's just overgrown, man. I mean, you got too many people for everything. You got too many people for the sidewalks. You got too many people for the bike paths. You got too many people for the road. So you actually have to build all of the infrastructure here, not just some of it. And that's, that's where we get back to when we talk about solutions. Why are we talking about one thing and not everything? You really do have to do everything here. It's like they say with evolution. You can't grow a liver and not have a heart, right? You have to have all of the organs at the same time. Otherwise, it's probably not going to work. And it's the same thing here. You have to have the bikes, the cars, the buses, the trains, all at the same time. It's going to be a long-term and, I think, a long, complicated solution. And, and we are headed that way anyway. Um, there is already talk about closing off some roads um not only here but in new york city where they're going to start congestion pricing they're already coming out with some of that um i've heard that in some like in philadelphia i mentioned boston where they have a network of roads that were just little trails and then people are building stuff because these cities have been around for 400 500 years um that they they can now start closing some of these roads off Mm -hmm. but then that throws a lot of the deliveries because when when you're looking at the infrastructure now, it's going to make it more inconvenient for somebody if you close a road in front of somebody else. It's all the NIMBY stuff, right? Yep. Yep. I mean, that's that's what it comes down to. And, and I, I guess it's almost like a lot, a lot of things that are happening right now in the world. 
we have a huge $20 trillion United States debt that is going to have to be paid back eventually, right? Mm-hmm. We have trade deficits with other countries. All these things, there's got to be some pain for long-term growth. So maybe we it is time now to go through the short-term pain to get to long-term growth. Yes. Uh, I think the issue, as you'll find at Denver International Airport right now, is that that short-term pain is painful. Yes. And people just don't want to deal with that, man. That is another debacle. Oh, my goodness. Well, don't call it a debacle. Oh, yeah. The airport said it's not a debacle. That's our word, not their word. There you go. It is something. And if you're not up to speed on this whole deal, we've been breaking news about the Denver International Airport has been trying to go through a whole rehab process where they want to move the security down from the Great Hall area. So if you go to the terminal area, it's in right the area right before you would go down to these escalators to the trains that would take you then to the concourses. So really the only secured area of the airport are the concourses where the planes are coming and going. And that great terminal area is an open area where it's supposed to have restaurants and foods, but nobody hangs out there, at least the flyers, because they're freaked out because it's going to take them a half an hour or 45 minutes to get through security, so they're not willing to stay and eat at the whatever that's over there, the restaurant or stop at the shop, because they want to bust it through security because they're worried they're going to miss their flight. Yep. Yep. So they want to move the security lines to right after you check in so you have that whole big great hall area and, they, and then they can open that up to the travelers and so you could hang out there and and take a, and take a, a, a sip of a beer and have some food and, and play that little mini golf stupid thing. And the airport can make a ton of money because right. they got a shopping mall out there and they got a, you know what I mean, like a nice luggage place and a nice clothing store and a few new restaurants and things of that nature. That's what it's really all about. They want to move the security gates so they have more space to put in more shopping. And uh, Yes, and then get all the concession because that's part of this deal too because they wanted to take it. So it basically they fired the, the company and the, the partnership that they had to uh, to rebuild the entire airport for what what was it some hundreds of millions of dollars? I mean the right? most recent price tag that we got was going to be one and a, one and a half billion basically yeah. somewhere in there. So uh, they they fired these people and then the 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 contractor people have been saying that there's sub uh, uh, sub poured concrete and sub strength concrete out there at the airport that was originally poured. Uh, who who is looking into that? Why aren't we looking into that issue? Why the concrete was so bad poured at the airport originally? Well, but but was it? I think is the question, and that's really the great unknown: is how how weak is the concrete? Do we have an airport that's moments away from collapse, or do we have an airport that you know just needs a little TLC? And, and why is it that original contractor been contacted and asked, "Hey, why don't you fix this? Why aren't you a part of this thing? And and how did you get away with with giving us some shoddy concrete?" Yes, I mean at the end of the day, my analysis is this. Denver is getting out of a partnership because they felt like the contractor is doing a bad job. Whether whether or not the contractor was doing a bad job or whether the airport is just overreacting, I don't think we're ever going to know. But the big que- but the biggest thing for the city of Denver is they got out of a bad deal. Yes, because they, they were locked into thirty years of paying these people to run concessions. And I'll tell you what, Jason, you and I could have run concessions under that deal. Yes. and made twenty percent of the money. And a lot, yes, and that's a lot of money. Yeah, I mean, you were talking about they were going to be making thirty million a year plus the twenty percent of concessions, which is probably going to come out to about thirty million a year. So, I mean, you're going to make back your money with multiple multiples of interest that's why the airport is that's another reason because you always as they say follow the money and this is a lot of money and now the airport is going to be in charge of all the concessions and getting all that money so they're going to basically run it like this they're going to get a contractor get the contractor on board start the project again and then dia is going to run the whole thing but but this is gonna. This is bad for the airport's reputation. I don't think oh, there's yeah. any. There's no doubt about that. I mean, we we've spent so much time talking about all the lists that this airport makes. How it's among the most comfortable in the world. How it's been really moving up the worldwide rankings and the American rankings. We're not going to be saying that while this construction is going on. And we may not be saying it at the end of construction if the city has to scale back because they were forced to pull out of this deal. Well, the points guy listed Denver International. I think it. 33 as the 33rd best airport so it's actually in one of the bottom part of the airport uh, list making it one of the worst airports right now in the country mm-hmm. um, and, and there's still uh, our, our ta- is talk at least from the long time people there's been so many bless you there's been so many new people that have moved here I think they've forgotten about the whole United airline baggage 
uh, problem that they had when they first opened the airport. So few people know about that or remember that at all. Mm-hmm. Um, but they will be remembered for this because they're going to see it for the next five years. Exactly. And that's really, I mean, we're only just beginning to see the problems to the reputation that are going to develop from all that's going on. So I'm glad on my October trip, I'm actually going to be flying out of the Springs. Because uh, that is an easy airport to get in and out of, where I just boom, get there, get out, and it's it's security is is five minutes at best. Can we can we break another pit of airport news right here? What's that? So Fort Collins is adding flights oh, yeah. right. to uh, Las Vegas and Phoenix, and my reaction was. Who wants to go from Fort Collins to they Phoenix? They tried this once before. So the, it's Allegiant Airlines. Yep. They were a one time at uh, Fort Collins Airport and Colorado Springs, but then they pulled out of both, and they would only fly to Las Vegas from both places. Now Allegiant is back. Allegiant is a much bigger airline at this time, and they are going to be flying again out of Fort Collins Airport, which is a regional airport, what, 40 miles north of Denver. Yep. Yep, uh, and it will fly to Phoenix now, and also Las Vegas. But those are the only two. But obviously, that gets you then into one of their hubs, and you can connect from those places to other places on in the east where Allegiant is has has a bigger presence. Yes. So, uh, and, and their flights are really cheap. Yep. I mean, really, really cheap. That airline has gone through a lot of turbulence, you could say, <laughs> over the last few years. <laughs> uh, so it makes sense that their flights are cheap. We'll see if it works, man. I'm just saying. I, I there was a whole 60 Minutes report about them and the safety of the airline, and and, uh, and it was so I, I I they haven't crashed a plane yet. That's true, and really, that's what we're all going to remember. That com- the company that breaks the streak of safe American flights landing. Yes, that's that's going to be the one that we remember. Exactly, exactly. So there's there's a lot of airport news going on around here. And speaking of airports, last week I, I talked about some interesting experiences that you can enjoy at airports around the world. And I saw this week in Dallas, they are planning a space where you can actually satisfy your hot wings fix and practice your golf swing all at the same time. There's a proposal for Dallas to bring a Buffalo Wild Wings and Top Golf venue to the airport. You could do that at the revamped DIA, but you can't do that. At uh, at at the DIA, the way it is right. currently configured, but I think that is what these airports are going to turn into: retail resorts, entertainment meccas, that sort of thing. So when you have a three-hour layover, boom, you're at the Top Golf for an hour. You you know, blow through because they're going to charge you, of course, a little bit more because it's yep. at the airport. Yep. But you can spend that hour having a beer. Hitting some hitting some balls, spanking whitey as they say, uh, and uh, and there you go. Do they say that? Yes, they do. Okay, and it's going to be in the secured part of the airport, just like all these other airports want to do is have all this entertainment inside the airports. This is just the start of what we're going to see with these airports and how they're going to change and uh, what they're going to look like in the future. I'll tell you what, I don't like it. You don't? I, I don't like it. I don't I don't think it makes sense. I don't think it's going to work. I think that we're going to see a lot of closed storefronts at these malls going forward. That'll be interesting. Anyway, we have a big uh, show today, including a guest, Bob Cook, who wrote an interesting piece in Forbes about why there are fewer kids riding bikes than in years past. I see fewer kids on bikes in my neighborhood, so I was interested in this piece, and it'll be interesting to get his perspective. He told me he was in Switzerland last week, so... He should be rested and relaxed uh, for the interview that's coming up in just a little bit. Is he still in Switzerland? Well, no. He said, I I, I offered to do the WhatsApp app, um, but because if I had just called him, boy, but yep. I don't think Holly would be pleased with that bill. No. Um, to no. call somebody for the podcast on the old phone and... Uh, you know, the, why do we have a bill? Well, I don't, Holly doesn't really talk like that. Yeah, no, she's not Kermit the Frog. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, yeah, when she asked me about why we have a ninety-dollar phone bill for the podcast, uh, that would be tough to uh, that would be tough to justify. Uh, but anyway, he'll he'll be coming up in just a bit. But before we get uh, into that, there's there's a, a, another thing I wanted to bring up. It was a situation we were just talking about Allegiant Airlines. So this October, my family and I are going to be heading down to Florida. We're going to go on that Disney cruise. We're celebrating my mother-in-law's 70th birthday. Beautiful. Right? Love that. It's a Monday through Friday cruise, so I thought it'd be easier to get a cheap flight down there a couple of days ahead of time, 
I didn't think it was going to cost that much money because usually the flights between Denver, Colorado Springs, and Orlando, you can get direct flights. It used to be pretty easy to get those direct flights for not much money. Well, I was way wrong, (laughs) at least for this October. For some reason, they have uh, shut it down, the cheap flights, and now everything was really expensive. We're talking like $1,500 to $1,600 for the four of us to fly down there to Orlando, which is crazy. Well, I'm not going to pay that much money. I'm going to figure out a different way. I'm not flying United or Delta or American or any. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do it, sir. Okay. No, thank you. I can't wait to see where this is going. So I booked a flight on Frontier, and it, it, was, it wasn't it was the greatest flight times, but it was okay. But I had to book it this way. It, and this is the craziest thing. It was cheaper to, for me to fly out of Colorado Springs than Denver. And I connect through Atlanta and then down to Orlando. Now, when I booked the trip, it was actually less expensive for me to book three one-ways rather than round trip. It was also less expensive for me, instead of booking a, uh, uh, let's say, a, 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 a flight between Colorado Springs and Orlando and just putting those two flights in and then having giving me the connection, it was cheaper for me to buy the one-way segment to Atlanta and buy the other separate one-way sec- uh, segment between Atlanta and Orlando. Which is crazy. It was like $80 cheaper to do it that way than to book it as a as, as one segment instead of the two. So this is the old value meal pro- problem, right? Because right. Because it used to be they sold you the value meal because you were getting a discount because you were ordering the sandwich, the fries, and the drink all together. But now they charge you more for the value meal because you're too stupid to figure it out. Yes. And that the sandwich, the fries, and the drink by themselves are cheaper. And that's where we flipped, and that's the same thing that you just described, is that right. it used to be you bundled the three flights together, so you got it for less. But now you're too stupid to go book the three <laughs> flights yourself and figure out how a schedule works, so they're going to get you with the upcharge when you bundle it all together. Now, the one concern I had was, are they going to charge me double bags because they are two separate flights? But none of that really matters now, because what happened was I received an email from Frontier. And what they said is that they were going to have a flight change, a time change for the flights, not only from Colorado Springs to Atlanta, but also Atlanta to Orlando. So what was going to be about a 90-minute layover in Atlanta has turned into, I fly into Atlanta 20 minutes after the flight from um, Atlanta to Orlando has already left. So that's obviously a problem, (laughs) right? So I can't do that. I can't do, I can't, you know, I can't, well, it, your, your flight just left 20 minutes ago. Well, crap. I called Frontier because I'm thinking, all right, well, they're really going to hose me now. So they gave me a couple options. The one option was I could take the later flight, which was like at 930 at night. I'm supposed to get there to Atlanta at like 3. And that was, all right, that's, that, that's doable, but I don't want to spend six hours in the Atlanta airport. That's not, that's not that. But, and then get to uh, Orlando by 11 o'clock at night, and I just didn't want to have to deal with any of that. Very unpleasant. Unpleasant. Yep. So uh, they said I could cancel one of my segments. So because I am flying back to the Springs, I can't can't have a car in different places, right? And we're supposed to be getting back to the Springs on that uh, Friday night, whatever, l- late. So I need my car so I can drive, and i got to take an Uber at 11 o'clock at night. Yep. So I canceled the Atlanta to Orlando leg. And I was looking for, again, cheap flights. And I found one on Spirit. Yay. <laughs> yeah. Oh so, so I have, uh, and, and it was going to the Tampa airport. So, these, this, so this flight <laughs> was leaving Atlanta at 6 o'clock on Spirit to get to Tampa at 730. And then I can stay in Clearwater at the beach there, wake up, go to the ocean on that next day, and then drive across the state over to Port Canaveral, where the cruise ship's going to be, uh, later on in the day. That is the plan. So, But I, but there's a bonus here, Joseph, a bonus. Is there, is there a bonus to all this? Because it sounds like you got quite a few bonuses already, my friend. So, I get to fly on Spirit for the first time. That's a bonus. Okay. I get to fly into the Tampa airport for the first time. That's a bonus. I've never seen the Tampa airport. I've driven through Tampa, but I've never gone to the Tampa airport. Exciting. And I get to stay on Clearwater Beach for the first time at the Pelican Point Motel. Oh. Oh. <laughs> Old-style motel. Pelican right Point. Right there. Yes, oh, the old boy. Pelican Point. Point with an E. 
They'll eat the lunch right off your front porch. Oh yeah. So if I had a breakfast sandwich there on the beach, boom, there. Yep. Here Pelican come the city. Pelican City. Yeah, all the seagulls are gonna come eat all my all my stuff. So the cost of the flight and the hotel. I mean, all the different changes are. It's actually a wash between what the because the Frontier flight was cheaper, but the Spirit flight flight is a little bit more expensive. Uh, but I'm saving money on the hotel from that night to compared to the Pelican Point, uh, and but the, and the car rental is the same because it's a one way rental from now Tampa on over to Port Canaveral. So when did you say the the last episode of our podcast ever will be before you're murdered at the Pelican Point <laughs> Hotel? <laughs> I don't think I'll be murdered. I mean, it'll be fun. It'll be good. I mean, we talk about all the all the new shops and, and stuff that they have at the Tampa airport, so maybe I'll be able to uh, experience some of that, and I'll bring you that experience back here onto the show. I can't wait to hear how that Samsonite store was. Should be an interesting adventure either way, <laughs> I think. So I have that to look forward to in October. But when I was searching for my flights, I kept seeing the first thing when you type in an airline, like Frontier, Spirit, or Allegiant, whatever, You'll, you'll see Google, the flight option there, so you can just type in in the Google, not not in the Google search bar, but then it, it, Google says, all right, where do you want to go? Where, it's like they have their own flight search engine mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, because they're cha- they're, they are trying to take over travel now, and when Google tries to take over something, usually they do it. So it, it's nice, but it doesn't search every airline. Like I didn't see any Southwest flights because I don't think Southwest puts any of their flights anywhere else except for Southwest. Correct, yep. But I'm still a bit hesitant to use it for some reason. I don't know why. Um, I, I, I think I still get a better deal from the airline directly, even though it's probably ludicrous, right? Well, what's ludicrous is why do you think Google wants your flight information? Because they want to spy on there me. You go. And they want to sell me something, right? Yep. yep. Um, anyway, Google Flights, they want people to trust them. So this is how they're going to do it. They are betting that they can guarantee the ticket prices are not going to go down if you book a flight with Google. And they will refund the fare difference if the prices do go down and you book with Google. So I have to do the work? I have to sit there and monitor the no, prices? No, 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 no. They do it. They say that they monitor those flights. So let's say I booked from Atlanta to Tampa and my flight cost me $300. And if, if I used the Google... And uh, the Google says that, hey, it went down. They're going to, boom, give me the difference. Jason, how many times do you think Google's going to say, oh, the, play- the price of this flight happened to go down just moments after you bought it? Now, I don't think they're going to send us a check in the mail. No. I think that'll be end up as a, a credit for one of their services or something because they're never going to send. It's just like all the other places. They, they'll, they'll give you a credit of some sort. Great. Right? Now, this is what Google said to ABC News. We're confident that for certain flights, the price you are seeing is the lowest available. That's why we are guaranteeing that if a price drops before the plane takes off, we will refund the difference. There it is right there in print to ABC News. Uh, Those flights will be designated with a price guarantee badge and travel must be completed between August 13th, which is just passed, uh, and November 24th, so basically Thanksgiving, okay. right before Thanksgiving. Google will monitor the flight prices and email a link to offer a refund if the price drops before the flight takes off. That's how this works. Uh, part of the promotion is also to feature their other features of Google Flights, like seeing the price history of a specific flight going back several months. They will also predict pricing for the next few days. For some airlines, there will be more transparency for what's included in the fare, like your check bags or seat selections. And that's why I think I, I like to search individual airlines, because then you can figure out how much the... Because all the uh, seats are going to cost different uh, amounts of money, and, and the bags are pretty much the same. Well, though. but right. And there's nothing I love more than not getting transparency with what I'm paying for in my flight, right? Like, hey, yeah. this is $60, but we're not, we're not going to cover your bags, your seat, your overhead <laughs> space, right? But and, and if and if you I, I think are perfectly comfortable with handing over more of your own personal data, Joseph, you can personalize your own travel arrangements and and give them all your travel arrangements, where you're going, all that stuff. And then Google will also suggest hotels based on your previous searches or proximity to points of interest you've searched for, all of that stuff. So not only do they want to know what you're looking at, where you're staying, 
where you're flying, when you're flying. They want to predict what you want to do next. But this is such classic Google, right? Because the, the strategy here is, oh, yeah, we'll offer the same thing that every other booking website offers. But since people just come to Google and type in things and it magically appears for them, they'll use our platform instead. But they also take all of your information, your timeline, if you will, and they update it on your Google uh, calendar and all that stuff. So you know exactly where you're supposed to go at what time. Yes. We I mean, are, so you are a Google world. We are an unbelievably lazy people, and yes. so Google owns us. It's a bit creepy. It's like your Backstreet Boys or your InSync, your your Rolling Stones or the Beatles, your Apple or your Google, one of the two, because they are all trying to get all of your data, all of it, and that's what they want. That that is the way they want to run and rule the world, Joseph. Yes, sir. All right, Joseph. When I was a kid, I could ride my bike for hours and hours. We used to make jumps. I still have a rock in my elbow from when I wiped out and it never got cleaned out properly. I'll let you feel it later. Can't wait. Uh, <laughs> and we'd ride all over the neighborhood. You know, it actually gave us freedom to ride around the neighborhood and go to different places and other people's houses that we really didn't want to walk to. But is it becoming too dangerous to let now our kids ride their bikes? There is one person who is making that argument in a piece titled, Why Fewer Children Are Riding Bikes. Forbes contributor Bob Cook says, the number one threat to their lives is cars. As a father myself of two uh, bike riding girls, I couldn't agree more. To talk more about his piece and how we can deal with it is Forbes contributing author Bob Cook. Bob, thanks for being here on the world famous Driving You Crazy podcast. It's my pleasure to be here. So, Bob, you start off your piece by saying, my 13-year-old daughter, if what I'm reading is to be believed, is increasingly a highly unusual child in that she rides a bike. Why do you say riding a bike is highly unusual? Well, because a lot of our neighborhoods aren't built for it. Um, a lot of uh, parents are afraid to have their kids uh, ride, you know, ride bike for various reasons or, or just don't have them at all. Um, it's more expensive to get a bike. I mean, in, in every uh, everyone who's measuring uh, bicycle sales and uh, bicycle participation by children sees those numbers continually going down. And so, uh, you know, so for her to just go out and ride her bike for you know for no reason um, is uh, is something you don't see too much. Um, I certainly don't see it among her friends. You are the father of four. Did you feel this way about the dangers of riding a bike with all of your kids? Well, I, you know, it's something that I, I you know, wanted them to do or, or encouraged them to do. But, um, you know, I'm in an area in Chicago where, you know, we're, we're in a neighborhood where we're surrounded by, um, you know, by six lane roads. So essentially there's a, you know, kind of a hard stop for, for where you can go. And even um, within our neighborhood, which, you know, is, is fairly tightly packed and, and has sidewalks, I've, you know, the way that people drive, people don't look for people on bikes. You know, they don't look for people walking or running. Um, they, you know, you know, the car is, uh, is, is above everything. And so um, that makes it, you know, more dangerous for, you know, for kids to just go out and ride because, you know, it's, again, it's not a road system built for bikes. And, you know, drivers aren't thinking about looking for bikes when, you know, when kids are out. And, and even um, when they get somewhere, there's, there's no place for them to park it or lock it. Um, you know, even a lot of schools uh, discourage uh, kids from riding their bikes to school. So, you know, we're, we're just in a situation where even though there's certainly there have been advances in a lot of cities with putting in bike lanes and, you know, trying to make them more bike friendly, um, you know, that in the main uh, kids just don't really have the opportunity to ride um, to ride freely. But I think when cities are changing their infrastructure and Joseph and I had this conversation earlier in the show about the dangers of bike riders in these congested areas. It's really for adults riding their bikes and not for kids. Kids are, like you say, are mostly just going to ride around the neighborhood. And it, 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 even in my neighborhood, where the speed limit, I think, is still too high at 25 miles an hour, you're right. I, I see the, the people that are driving up and down my street um, with houses that are lining up. It's not like there's businesses there, but they're going so fast, they're not paying attention. They're doing all the same things that we see people do on the freeways and the interstate. And so you have to separate, I think, the areas even uh, in, in your neighborhood where it, it should be safe compared to the urban areas where you, you would think it would hopefully be safe, but you're not going to see kids there necessarily riding their bike down, down a Broadway, if you will. No, no. And, and 
you know, on top of this too, I mean, so I, so I certainly mentioned cars and, and, you know, and that's a factor. And, and, but, you know, there's also the factor that, that, you know, the kids' lives are much more structured as, as, as compared to the past. I mean, there's, you know, more kids earlier in, in different athletic activities or school activities or, or, um, you know, theater, sports, arts, whatever. So, um, you know, so there's not a lot of, it's not a lot of free time anyway. So, and, and these are, um, these are events that, you know, again, that, you know, they're not within necessarily a distance where kids could bike there, um, you know, or not at a time when, you know, you, as a parent, you'd feel it would be safe, you know, for them to return. So, you know, so kids are being driven from place to place and, you know, with, with activities that are already pre-planned. So, you know, one thing that, you know, when, you know, we talk about the halcyon days of just, you know, taking your bike and riding all over the place is that you probably didn't have anything else to do. You know, now, you know, for, for a lot of, for a lot of kids, um, you know, their lives are, are very structured. So there's just not that, that, that time to explore. Yeah. You mentioned that in your piece that the sports and fitness industry association says that the number of children ages six to 17 who rode a bicycle at least 25 times in a year fell by a million over the past year. Do you, do you think that as you were mentioning that all of that has to do with now our lifestyle or maybe it's just too dangerous where we live now? Well, it's, it's, a, it's a lot of different factors and, and but yeah, that, that basically we have a lifestyle, you know, first off in, in the U S that's heavily geared toward cars. And, you know, I definitely got a contrast to that. Um, where last week I was on a business trip in, in Zurich, Switzerland, and, you know, it's a city that's not, you know, where the car is part of a transportation network, you know, it's part of a network with walking and biking and trams and buses and trains. And so, um, you know, there's, there's easy areas to, you know, to ride your bike and to get around and, and, and to get around safely, you know, where in the U S everything, you know, you've got stores over here and houses over here and schools over here and, you know, and everything's kind of often it's different corner and, you know, and, and everything is, and everything is built for the convenience of the car. So, um, so that's a factor, you know, I mentioned about, you know, activities, but yeah, the, it, you know, it's, you know, the bike as a tool of transportation, you know, for kids is just not something that's encouraged. And, and there's certainly is, there's a safety aspect too, as well. You know, when, I mean, one difference over time is that, you know, there was a time when, you know, you, you didn't put on a helmet, you didn't put on pads, um, you know, before you went out. I mean, there's, you know, there's a, a you know, there's a thought that, that, you know, riding a bike, you know, has, has its own risks. Um, and so, yeah, so it so for kids, it's it's you know it's not something where you just get up, we just get up and go. One of the factors, say too, in the in the raw numbers um, that I don't know that I alluded to in the piece, but um, you know the birth rate in this country has been falling and falling at at, at its lowest rate in forever. Um, so you know some of where you don't see kids biking is that you just don't see kids. <laughs> just, um, you know, there just aren't as many, you know, aren't as many kids as, you know, I mean, if you're a baby boomer, you grew up and there were a zillion kids and, and you could, you know, they live next door and you could get together and you all rode off in a group where, you know, today, you know, it, the kids are fewer and far between. So it's kind of harder to get together. We continue to speak with Bob Cook. He's a contributing author in Forbes with uh, about his piece, Why Fewer Children Are Riding Bikes. And listen, Bob, I, I, I'm going to draw my own conclusions, and then you tell me if you agree with them or not. But it seems like part of what's happening here is just a matter of parents not doing their job, right? Turning to different ways to entertain their kids, giving them the phone, putting them in front of the television, finding ways to occupy their time, and not going out and spending the time and teaching them how to ride the bike in the first place. Yeah, I don't know about that. I mean, I don't, I mean, that, that could be true. I mean, there, I haven't seen numbers about, you know, whether, you know, whether their parents teaching their kids to ride bikes or not. Um, I, that I don't know. Um, yeah, certainly. Um, yeah. If you're, if you're talking about, you know, using a bike to fill time, there's certainly a lot of things that can, that can fill time, um, you know, whether organized or not organized. So yeah, I mean, for, you know, for my kids, it's, it's just as easy to, you know, to hop on, you know, a group chat or, you know, a, you know, video conference basically, and, you know, get 10 people together at once, you know, than it is for everybody to try to figure out physically how to get in the same spot. So, um, you know, so certainly that may be a factor as well, but, um, but no, it's, it's, you know, it's, you know, again, it's, it's a lot of different things. I mean, you know, again, certainly there's, you know, we have a transportation network that's geared toward cars and that I feel like is the number one thing, but yeah, you can, you can point to a lot of other factors to say, 
you know, that, oh, it's, you know, it, it also is, yeah, it's easier to get together on your phone or, you know, you, you have a lot, you know, kids have a lot more activities, you know, planned activities they have to do, or, you know, parents are just worried about, you know, safety. And so they'd rather, you know, they'd rather drive them because, you know, they feel more in control of the situation. I mean, it's a lot of, it's a lot of different things that, that add up to what you're seeing. Well, let me ask you this. Do you think, I know your data kind of covers the, the, sh- the raw number of kids who have ridden a bike in the last tw- in the last year more than 25 times, but would you guess that the number of kids or the percentage of kids that actually does know how to ride a bike has gone up, gone down, or stayed about the same? I would guess it stayed about the same. I mean, I've, you know, I've seen kids, you know, ride bikes. I mean, I've seen them, you know, that I think, you know, it does happen, you know, especially as you're younger. I mean, it's still a rite of passage to, to, you know, to, to ride a bike and to learn how to do it. Um, but again, it's, you know, the, you know, the, there's less of a functionality for, you know, for riding a bike. Um, I mean, if you, you know, were able to ride your bike to school or, you know, ride your bike, you know, to, you know, to McDonald's or, you know, or whatever, then, then, you know, then you do it. But, um, yeah, it's, it's, uh, there's, there's just a lot of, again, it's just a lot of different things that, that, that enter into this. And, and, and I don't know that I'd necessarily blame parents and say, well, you know, they're, they're, you know, they're falling down on the job in terms of, you know, teaching their kids to ride a bike. Um, you know, there's just, again, it's just a lot of different things. You mentioned that, we may be too dependent on cars, and in your piece, you write, car dependence also means our retail districts are no longer to human scale, much less to the scale of a child, whereas once upon a time, a kid may have ridden down to the soda fountain for an egg cream or whatever they used to drink. Today, <laughs> it's a cotton candy creme frappuccino blended creme dispensed from a Starbucks surrounded by 100 parking spaces. How do you think we can change our lifestyle or are we just too far gone to one change the dependency on cars and maybe bring back the old quarter grocery store well one thing you're already seeing and and this is where you're seeing a lot of demand in urban areas for bike lanes is that you know there's there's been a lot said about um you know particularly you know you know millennials who you know have been blamed for killing all sorts of things um i don't know if they're gonna kill the car but uh they're you know uh, but you know but that there's you know more demand for you know, for housing, for, you know, for, for basically a way to have a car-free lifestyle because, you know, cars are insanely expensive. They're, they're expensive to buy. They're expensive to maintain. They're expensive to park. Um, you know, if there's a way to go car-free, you know, that would be great. I mean, I've, you know, I lived in New York for a while and was car-free and I, I never missed it. Um, it was, it, it just was, you know, it was very easy to adjust to that. So, um, so yeah, so having, so having it where, you know, where things are, you know, where things are closer. Again, I mentioned, you know, being in Zurich. I mean, the, the way neighborhoods are built there, I mean, you have, you know, school and retail and office and everything, you know, really within, you know, essentially in these sectors that are like, you know, where you could get anywhere in about 15, 20 minutes. You know, that's just not the case in the U.S. And, you know, I don't expect that to change appreciably because, I mean, we've, you know, we built a lot of subdivisions over time and, and there are people who, enjoy, you know, who enjoy their cars. But um, but certainly there's a growing demand for at, at least trying to get things more dense. So you're not necessarily, sit, you know, if you have a car, you're not sitting in it quite as long. We are speaking with Bob Cook. He's the Forbes contributing author with a piece called Why Fewer Children are riding bikes. So, Bob, the other day I was uh, with my girls, and I rode down to the tree swing. It's We're just riding down the path, really not on the roads because we have a, the ability to do that. We have a little tunnel that goes under the main roads because it's safer. And, and we, did, we weren't wearing our helmets. We, we rarely actually ever wear our helmets, which is probably a, a little bit stupid. But I, I did that as a kid, and, I, and I'm surviving just fine. But, yeah, <laughs> but I think our, but our subdivisions really aren't designed in that same way. It still feels like we should be able to have our kids riding around without their helmets on our neighborhood streets without the risk of being run over by a car now with these big flat fronts that can just wipe them out and, and kill them in an instant. Well, that's the other thing is that even looking at the cars that are on the road is that, you know, you have a lot of SUVs, you have a lot of pickup trucks. And, and so, yeah, so the impact is, is that much greater and harder. So, um, you know, so it's, it's, I mean, I, I, you know, I say all of this not to discourage people to have their kids go out and ride bikes because, you know, it's, it's just something that's great. It's a great, you know, it's a great exercise, a great activity. 
Um, and, you know, and it's one of these things, I mean, unlike a lot of sports that you might put your kids in, you know, it's, it's something that, you know, they can enjoy as a child and, and do it for the rest of their lives. So, um, you know, it's, it's very practical in that way, but, but yeah, it's, you know, that, you know, right now, you know, it's, it's incumbent upon the bike rider to be, you know, to be extra careful, which is fine. I mean, every, anybody on the road should be careful, but, um, you know, but there is an expectation, you know, for, you know, the bike rider to, you know, to be more aware than, than the person in the car. And so, you know, so, you know, there, there's signs around the country you see sometimes that they share the road and there's a picture of a cyclist. And, you know, at a, at a minimum, if people in cars could at least keep that in mind and, you know, and not be hostile toward people, uh, you know, on bikes or, you know, whip open your car door when you see one coming or, you know, or what, or, <laughs> yeah. you know, some of the other things you hear about, um, you know, that, um, that, yeah, that, you know, this, you know, that, that, you know, kids on bikes have as much right to share the road as, as, as any SUV. And, and, you know, we should all have that attitude when we're on the road. Do you see this trend of fewer kids riding bikes continuing? Yes, I think so. I mean, certainly in the short term, um, you know, it, it's, uh, you know, again, the, the, you know, it's, it's something that to turn around, I mean, there's going to be, have to be some, some sort of concentrated activity, you know, certainly, um, you know, I'm sure that the bike industry will be doing this, but also, you know, if, if this is something that, you know, the schools want to encourage more or, you know, or parents want to push for neighbors has pushed for, I mean, people, you know, if, if, if they want this to turn around, I mean, people have to be very intentional and, and have to speak up, um, you know, about this and about the need to, you know, to have, you know, bike friendly environments where, you know, yeah, you can send your kid out to, you know, to ride a bike and, and, you know, and not have to worry, you know, so much about it. So, yeah, I, I, I'm sure that, you know, the next five years or so, you'll, you'll continue to see this go down, but, you know, but again, if, if, um, you know, as, you know, on the other hand, you know, as we mentioned, you know, cities are starting to, you know, become more bike friendly. So, you know, maybe we're, we're moving toward a path where things may turn around. Finally, is there anything that we can do to maybe change the landscape to maybe bring those numbers back up and get our kids back onto the, uh, onto the sidewalks and onto their bikes? You know, one thing with parents is that, you know, that they, they, you know, kids watch what you do. And if you want your kids to ride bikes, I mean, one thing that's helpful is to go out with them. I mean, ride a bike yourself. I mean, it's, um, you know, go out and ride together, uh, you know, make it a family activity. I mean, this is, um, you know, it's, it's, I mean, what's great about biking is it, it is something, you know, a family can do together, you know, unlike, you, you know, say if you're all going to go out running, I mean, everybody's going to be at a different pace, but, you know, cycling, it's a little easier to kind of keep everybody at the same pace. So yeah, I mean, take advantage, you know, take your kids out go together. Um, you know, it'll teach your kids to, you know, to love doing it and, and they'll want to continue to do it. It's a great point because every time that, uh, I say, Hey, I'm, let's go ride a bike. Boy, my kids are, are out the door faster than me. So <laughs> it, it really, now my getting my wife on a bike is going to be a whole different process. <laughs> uh, but <laughs> at least I can go ride with them. Exactly. At least one of you, at least one of you is out there. So. Yeah, exactly. All right. Bob Cook, contributor to Forbes magazine and a sports blog writer. You can find Bob on Facebook and on Twitter with the name Not Going Pro. Bob, thanks again for being here on the show. My pleasure. You can, again, find that article in Forbes online at Forbes.com. And, of course, you can get uh, Bob if you want. He, he's actually a youth sports blog uh, writer. He's contributed to NBCSports.com and MSNBC, and he's done um, all kinds of different writing about sports stuff, especially for kids. And you can find him on Facebook at Facebook.com, NotGoingPro, and Twitter.com at NotGoingPro. So thanks again to Bob for joining us here on the show. Uh, it's time now to introduce you to the newest member of the Local News Hall of Fame. These are people that I love. Uh, we featured them, I think, on the in, in the past on the show here. I feature them all the time on my Facebook page, uh, at Denver 7. No, that's that's my other one. At Denver 7 Traffic is Twitter and and Insta, as the, as the kids like to say. Um, uh, Jason Luber Traffic Guy is my Facebook. There's so many, my, my mind gets confused every once in a while, Joseph. Anyway, these people give such memorable news interviews to local news reporters they, they stand out as leaders in their field. Of, of people who talk. Yes. Eyewitnesses. The Eyewitness Hall of Fame. 
Now, this story comes to us from West Virginia. What, what happened was there was a tree that was cut down by some city workers, and the tree landed on top of a car owned by a college student who goes to Marshall University. Billy Tatum, he's there in Huntington, West Virginia. He saw exactly what happened when this tree came down in the car, and Billy has this to say. Sounded like a beer can getting flattened. It just was crunch. It was, I hate to say it, it was kind of cool. You know, I mean, what guy, what, you know, doesn't like, you know, destruction. Yeah, you know, that's why we go to demolition derbies. But, hey, you know, bottom line, that's that poor girl's new car, and she can't get to school now. Wow. <laughs> so much sympathy, man. That guy is a real empath. What what you really can't see here, and what what is one of the best parts of the interview, and, and you maybe have to get it on my Facebook page, is the super creepy smile that Billy gave at the very end there when he said "skew." <laughs> Priceless, Billy Tatum. Billy Tatum. Oh, love Billy Tatum, and still the other West Virginia person, the one who uh, the guy who had. Had some meth head steal his soap and steal all his his basketball and stuff. That's another priceless one. There's a lot of priceless ones out there. Hall of Famers. Hot local news, man. We we provide for you. Yes, and some of the local uh, commercials, produce commercials. Oh, those are great too. I, I feature as many as I can. The Lawhawk. We haven't featured the Lawhawk on here in a long time. No, we've not. I have on my Facebook page. I used to have that segment. Remember the 4:30 a.m. segment oh, yeah. where I had what's uh, interesting news from around the world. And uh, yeah, I used to feature the Lawhawk all the time. He was great. He was just perfect. Uh, by the way, those city workers who were responsible for cutting down the tree and crushing that poor girl's car. Yeah, they will have to pay for it because good. Whoops, karma. Billy is a guy who I'll bet has lots of fun stories uh, that he would be told over a couple of Paps Blue Ribbon beers. And I was going to say, that man knows how to crush a beer can. A couple of uh, George Dickel whiskey. <laughs> Probably not Canadian club. No, definitely George Dickel. Yeah. So <laughs> All right. Well, that's the show. Thanks again to Bob Cook for joining us here on the program, and thanks for being here. Uh, I don't have anything uh, scheduled for next week, so uh, I guess I better get after it. Um, <laughs> right? Can't wait. <laughs> you want to contribute to an interview? We no. go All right. Very good. Perfect. Uh, thanks again for listening. And until next time, I'm Jason Luber, the traffic guy. I'm mediocre whiskey connoisseur, Joseph Peters. Be safe, and as always, happy motoring.